Welcome everyone to another ICM Next Collaboration Podcast. My name is Ahmed Zahir. I'm a senior clinical fellow at Oxford University Hospitals. Today, my guest speaker, Prof. Julie Helms, who is a professor in critical care at Strasbourg University Hospital in France. Thank you very much, Ahmed. I just want to give a small introduction about your about your research activity. Prof. Helm's research activity focuses on the pathophysiological mechanism involved in vascular dysfunction of septic shock, with a special emphasis on hemostasis disorders and immunothrombosis dysregulation. Prof. Helms, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for this kind introduction, Ahmed. We will discuss today a review article which was recently published in ECICM, ICM journal. It's one of the most important core topics in our daily practice as intensivists, which is how to manage coagulopathies in critically ill patients. We will start by a simple question, which might look simple. What is the definition of coagulopathy? Mm, coagulopathy can probably de be defined by any alteration of hemostasis and multiple disease can be responsible for a coagulopathy, for example, sepsis or trauma. Okay. From here, I would like to ask you, what are the different clinical phenotypes of coagulopathy? That's an important question. There are different types of coagulopathy, and their presentation depends in part on the underlying disease that will be responsible for the coagulopathy. Each coagulopathy will, will have a dominant clinical phenotype, either a bleeding one or a clotting phenotype. But a patient may also display thrombotic and or hemorrhagic features at the same time. And this will depend on disease progression, on therapeutic interventions, and on time. Uh, for example, sepsis-induced coagulopathy has a prothrombotic phenotype. But at very late stages of the disease, usually when you have refractory shock and multiple organ failure, you may also have bleeding complications. I agree with you. It's a very complex and a delicate picture. Taking it from there, what are the different types of hemorrhagic coagulopathies? It's important to separate non-malignant hemorrhagic coagulopathy following a trauma or peripartum hemorrhage, for example and coagulopathy due to malignant disease, like in acute promulocytic leukemias, monocytic leukemia, and also in advanced adenocarcinoma, because their pathophysiology and treatment will not be the same ones. Thank you. Can you tell us more about the pathophysiology of hemorrhagic coagulopathies? It's quite complex because hemorrhagic coagulopathy are usually characterized by a hypocoagulable stage state um, and a, a hyperfibrinolytic state. If we take the example of hemorrhagic coagulopathy due to trauma, there is an initial hypocoagulable state resulting in bleeding at site of injury, but there is also massive hemostatic activation occurring in the circulation immediately after trauma due to extensive tissue and endocyline injuries. So this initial stage of hemorrhagic shock is associated with a hyperfibrinolytic state due to endocelial release of tissue plasminogen activator that will activate plasminogen into plasmin. And bleeding with 
ongoing thrombin generation also leads to consumption of coagulation factors, and we will also have platelet exhaustion that will alter the aggregation. So this hemorrhagic coagulopathy may be further worsened by uncontrolled bleeding, hemodilution, hypothermia, metabolic acidosis due to shock and multiple organ failure, and also hypocalcemia because there will be a consumption and also inactivation by saturated blood products. Thank you. I would like to discuss with you a special cohort of patients who are pregnant ladies. What is so special about them in terms of their physiology, making them hypercoagulable patients? That's an interesting question, too. During pregnancy, the synthesiotrophoblast will acquire endothelial cell-like properties with very important hemostatic functions, including high expression of tissue factors that will activate coagulation, protein C, protein S, protein Z, and tissue factor pathway inhibitors. And plasma can also release plasminogen activator inhibitors 1, PI1, and PI2 during normal pregnancy uh, so that it will prevent fibrinolysis. So if the synthesis of is disrupted, it can result in procoagulant effects through massive um, tissue factor release, inflammation activation, and also hyperfibrinolysis. That's really interesting. In your paper, you have mentioned a new term called fibrinolytic shutdown. Can you tell us more about it? Yes. Fibrinolytic shutdown means that fibrinolysis will be inhibited. For example, it's occurring a few hours after the initial tissue injury in trauma. You have a, a hyperfibrinolytic state that is inhibited by extensive release of inhibitors that reduce plasminogen availability and therefore plasmin production. Thank you. Moving forward, can you tell us more about the malignant hemorrhagic coagulopathies? Mm, about 20% of the patients with malignant hematological disease and also advanced adenocarcinoma may develop disseminated intravascular coagulation with bleeding complications prevailing over thrombotic ones. Bleeding complications are, for example, a clinical hallmark of acute pomelocytic leukemia as about 70 to 80% of the patients will develop a disseminated intravascular coagulation at the time of diagnosis or during induction therapy. In these oncological uh, states, both procoagulant and hyperfibrinolytic features may coexist. For example, you have um, tumor cells that will express tissue factor that will be responsible for coagulation activation it will also express procoagulant proteins that will downregulate anticoagulant pathways. But the problem is that these procoagulant mechanisms are largely overwhelmed by hyperfibrinolysis due to increased tissue plasminogen activator inhibitors. Sorry for that. So in these oncological states, both procoagulant and hyperfibrinolytic uh, features can coexist. Although tumor cells express tissue factors that will be responsible for coagulation activation um, and procoagulant proteins that will downregulate anticoagulant, anticoagulant pathways, 
this procoagulant mechanism will be largely overwhelmed by hyperfibrinolysis due to increased tissue plasminogen activator release. Thank you so much. Moving from the bleeding profile of coagulopathy, we will move to the thrombotic profile. What are the different types of thrombotic coagulopathies? Thrombotic coagulopathy, for example, includes sepsis-associated uh, coagulopathy and solid cancer-associated coagulopathy. That's the two main types. So let's talk about sepsis-induced coagulopathy. What are the important features of their pathophysiology? In sepsis, the main feature is that you will have major systemic inflammation that will induce tissue factor expression that triggers coagulation activation, and that will lead to excessive thrombin generation. Also, bacterial products will be able to amplify this reaction by direct activation of contact phase and also by inhibiting uh, reactive fibrinolysis. Also, natural anticoagulants are either depleted or less active, and fibrinolysis will become defective, leading to all um, to even more excessive thrombin generation and disseminated microthrombin. So it seems that it's all about thrombin generation here. There Indeed. was a so there was a there was an interesting term also in your paper which you have nicely explained, which I would like to give us more insight about, which is immunothrombosis. What do you mean by the term immunothrombosis? It's a term that is usually used in sepsis, because in sepsis, the innate intravascular immune response uh, causes a generation of, of thrombin, as we have just told it. And thrombin will be responsible for, for microthrombin development. And this is what, what is called immunothrombosis. Immunothrombosis is usually considered as a beneficial mechanism. It's a host defense mechanism against pathogen, allowing their recognition, containment, but also their destruction. However, in sepsis and mostly in septic shock, dysregulated immunothrombosis can lead to excessive coagulation activation ultimately leading to disseminated intravascular coagulation, and that will contribute to major tissue damage. Thank you so much. Moving from the pathophysiology, we would like to talk about more about the management of coagulopathy in our intensive cares. Can you tell me more about the lines of treatment of bleeding, of the bleeding profile? The first things to do is to treat the causative disease in any case and also to control bleeding. Hemostatic bleeding management includes replacement therapy with transfusions and or factor concentrates depending on the rate of bleeding and coagulation testing. And you have recent recommendations from the ESIGMA that have been published last year that recommend for um, that suggest high ratio transfusion strategies, which means uh, at least one unit of plasma for two units of uh, packed red blood cells in massively bleeding trauma patients. But unfortunately, there is no recommendation in non-trauma patients. As also as hyperfibrinolysis is an important contributor to bleeding, antifibrinolytic therapy like uh, from um, um, sorry. So 
As hyperfibrinolysis is an important contributor to bleeding, antifibrinolytic therapy with tranexamic acid may reduce bleeding after tissue injury, and it's therefore recommended within the three hours in critically ill patients with uh, bleeding due to trauma. Thank you. Moving to the other spectrum of coagulopathies, which is thrombosis, what are the main lines of treatment? In the context of thrombotic coagulopathy with an excessive thrombin generation like in sepsis, anticoagulation should prevent or reverse excessive coagulation activation and immunothrombosis dysregulation. However, in sepsis, you know that several anticoagulants treatments with sometimes immunomodulatory properties have already been tested, like heparins, antithrombin, activated protein C, or thrombomodulin. But so far, none has demonstrated any efficacy in reducing mortality rate, so none of them is recommended for the moment. Another interesting target might be to restore fibrinolysis because, as I told it to you, we have a hypofibrinolysis in sepsis. So maybe by supplementing deficient proteins, we might restore a fibrinolytic system. Thank you so much. You have mentioned in your paper about thrombomodulin. What's the role of thrombomodulin from your perspective? Thrombomodulin is a very important protein because by forming a complex with thrombin, it will allow the activation of protein C pathway and it will thus limit the amplification of coagulation cascade. But in septic shock, the endothelial expression of thrombomodulin is really downregulated, leading to decreased activation of protein C pathway. Um, also, thrombomodulin is a very interesting uh, protein because it has anti-inflammatory properties and it will protect the endothelium. And this might be very interesting in hyperinflammatory contexts like sepsis. Thank you so much. Can you tell me more about adaptive hemostasis? In sepsis, the activation of coagulation is an essential part of the host defense mechanism. It has been called immunothrombosis, as I have told it to you before. And this can be considered as an adequate activation of hemostasis, which we call also adaptive hemostasis. And therefore, adaptive hemostasis is a beneficial stage that should not be inhibited by treatments. Thank you. In your paper, there were some sort of landmark trials you have mentioned. So I would like you to give me a few words and tell us the main findings about these trials. I will start by the etactic trial. So what are your uh, main what are the main findings? What are your reflections on these trials? The didactic trial is a very interesting one because it is a pragmatic and multi-center randomized control trial which has included something like 400 trauma patients with hemorrhage. And this trial has compared interventions guided by, by viscoelastic hemostatic assay to conventional coagulation tests. Their primary outcome was the proportion of subjects who are 24 hours after injury were still alive and free of massive transfusion. And in the secondary outcomes, they also included 28-day mortality. And this trial showed that the intervention guided by viscoelastic hemostatic assay 
failed to improve uh, clinical outcomes compared to conventional coagulation tests. And what are your thoughts about this? Do you think it's important to have viscoelastic, viscoelastic essays to guide our uh, transfusions? It's quite difficult to answer to this question because uh, practice are very different among uh, the different uh, among the different teams. Some are using viscoelastometric tests uh, routinely, while others are not. So I would say that we should guide uh, transfusion according to what we are uh, using uh, routinely, and according to the result of this trial, I would say that. Following coagulation tests only to guide transfusion may not be a bad decision. Thank you. Moving from the ataxic trial, what are what do you think about the woman trial? The woman trial is a huge uh, trial which has enrolled more than twenty thousand women, who were randomly assigned to receive either tonexamic acid or placebo, and. In this trial, it was shown that death due to bleeding was significantly reduced in women receiving tonexamic acid, and especially in women who were given the treatment within the three hours after giving birth. And what is very important too is that tonexamic acid was not responsible for thrombotic adverse events. Thank you. I will move on to another trial which I which I really find interesting, which is Harlet trial. Can you tell us more about it? Sure. Scarlet trial is my favorite one. It's an international randomized control trial comparing the effect of a recombinant human thromboamandulin with a placebo. It's a very interesting and important trial because it is the first one to have included only patients with sepsis and acoagulopathy, which was defined by thrombocytopenia or decreased platelets uh, of more than 30% over um, 24 hours and an INA over 1.4. And also no significant reduction in day 28 mortality was observed in the full and lazy set. Thrombomodulin was more effective in the subgroup of patients with persistent coagulopathy at the time of administration of uh, the treatment and for those who did not receive concomitant treatment with heparin. And it's very important to bear in mind that before this trial, all the trials that have uh, looked at the efficacy of anticoagulant in sepsis-induced coagulopathy included all the patients with sepsis or septic shock um, independently of coagulopathy, which means that we have included uh, patients that did not have a coagulopathy and we have treated them with anticoagulant treatments. Thank you. That was very interesting. So coming to the end, what are your take-home messages which you would like to say to our young intensivists about how to manage coagulopathies in critical the most important take-home message is probably that coagulopathy is a very frequent and severe complication in critical care. It's important to understand that the underlying disease usually determines a specific clinical and biological presentation of the coagulopathy. Second point, the clinical manifestation will evolve depending on the time course of the disease and also depending on the therapeutic intervention. So there is not one coagulopathy, but several, several runs. 
and we cannot treat all the coagulopathy the same way. Thank you so much. And this brings up this brings us us to the end of our podcast. Thank you so much, Prof. Helms, for your contribution to the program. Thank you very much, Ahmed.